Hey, Joel. Hey, Tim. All these time travel episodes of Star Trek that we just watched makes me really want to see a Back to the Future movie. But instead of stealing plutonium from the Libyans, they steal it from the Nazis. They go back in time, Nazi nuclear bomb, they need it to be able to go back to 1985. That sounds great, right? Uh, I think you're being super critical, Tim. Ah. Welcome to another episode of Super Critical. You know, the podcast where we delve into the fun and sometimes nonsensical way pop culture and nuclear topics interact. This episode is the second part of our journey through the Star Trek catalog. In the previous episode, we debated the plot of The City on the Edge of Forever and whether minor time travel mishaps could have resulted in a nuclear Nazi Germany. Today, we picked another Star Trek episode and continued our tradition of needlessly overanalyzing things. My name is Tim Westmeyer. I am a nuclear enthusiast who has been working on and studying nuclear weapons issues for about a decade. As a result, I often need to keep the remote control pretty far away from me, or else I constantly pause the program we're watching, just so I can comment on what the show is getting right or wrong about nuclear weapons. I know, the worst kind of person. Fortunately, my two co-hosts today are much better people than me. First, I want to introduce Joel. Hi, I'm Joel, who knows nothing about nuclear issues, but I'm one of Tim's friends, and I love a good movie and good conversation, and that makes me eminently qualified to uh, be on this podcast. And we are fortunately joined again by our friend Gabe, who is our Star Trek enthusiast in residence. Gabe, how's it going? Good. How are you guys? Pretty good. See? See, I have audio proof that I have two friends, and they're both willing to sit and watch a nuclear weapon movie with me. We watched Assignment Earth. So this is the second episode that we watched today. You can listen to the first one we did, which was The City on the Edge of Forever, uh, that was released last week, March uh, 29, 1968. This aired and uh, had several guest stars for the episode. It was kind of an interesting one. It wasn't really just the Enterprise crew. It had this other guy, uh, Robert Lanson, who was the star of the episode as a character named Gary Seven, someone who has had a lot of TV, uh, over 250 episodes of TV. He brings a lot of you know, good character work um, to this particular episode. Another person that was in this was uh, Terry Garr. She was also in Young Frankenstein and Mr. Mom. And was also uh, Phoebe's birth mom in an episode of Friends. But Gabe, this is uh, an episode. Would you consider this uh, a great episode of Star Trek? Is this something that – where does this fit in the canon? Um, it's definitely not up there for me and I think not well received. I mean there's some good parts to this episode. I think one of the main issues is this episode was toward the end of the second season. Um, there was thoughts that Star Trek might be canceled, might not be renewed for a third season, which it actually ended up being. So this episode functions almost as a pilot for this character of Gary Seven. Uh, he has like a quirky receptionist, a, a sexy shape-shifting cat, and a... <laughs> named, uh, named Isis. Named Isis, very original, and uh, and a computer that's kind of, uh, you know, a little bit sassy with him. So th- it's it's a strange episode in that it's almost features these set of characters more than the Enterprise characters. The Enterprise characters are kind of chasing them around. 
Um, so it doesn't really feel like a regular Star Trek episode. The other thing, too, is the, the intro. Um, the premise is that they go back in time uh, to... The Enterprise goes back in time. Yeah, yeah the, the Enterprise goes back in time to kind of do a sociological survey mission of Earth. And in, in Star Trek, going back in time, is it's kind of a big event. It's not something that's just done... Uh, with regularity, and when it happens, it's it's kind of a big deal. Like the first episode that we talked about, where they felt like they were playing God, being able to alter history. Yeah, like last week's episode, they're they're like we're riding time waves, and there's distortions, and what's going on here? Ethical should, dilemmas. Yeah, what are should we, we go do? back? And here they just open up. They're like, well, uh, well, it was oh, a Tuesday, and I had some free time on our calendar, yeah, so I thought, you know, it was let's Tuesday. Get that. We got the light speed breakaway factor going. That of was course, the, of course, that was the jargon to to justify it. So. Lightspeed breakaway factor, and boom, we're back in time. And there's no real explanation of you know the the significance of this. As and do they ever do that at any point in that series or any other Star Trek series? I, I don't know if I've ever seen them actually have it on assignment to go back in time. No, that's that's not. Yeah, that's definitely not a. You know, sometimes they'll end up going back in time. Most notably from um, Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home, where um, that's where the, the one that to save the whales. Exactly where they they go back in time. There's this weird CGI, uh, actually ahead of its time, kind of CGI montage thing but but no it's not a common plot device so the enterprise goes back in time to secretly monitor the earth uh in the 1960s during this very contentious time there are lots of events that are about to take place i think there was an assassination of a major leader that was about to happen uh the cold war was in full swing and they were the enterprise was going to fl- orbit the earth listening to communications secretly behind their force field I don't understand. I always thought that, that the the Klingons were the one that had the cloaking device. I guess we just wouldn't look up to see them in the Enterprise floating around the Earth. But okay, well, that, that's fine. But Gabe, does everything go according to plan? Do they just kind of monitor and everything's fine? No, uh, surprisingly not. No, they, um, the uh, Enterprise intercepts a transporter beam uh, that's unexpected. And this transporter beam brings this character basically out of nowhere this gary seven character along with his cat isis uh in cat form um, he was just standing there stroking his dr evil <laughs> yeah exactly um and he uh so he comes aboard and there's some question about who he is it's kind of revealed that he's a human from uh the current time but has been taken to some faraway planet trained by some unnamed aliens that you know, it's uh, they purposely go not to name the planet or the aliens. So they weren't from Omnicron Four, or is that just somewhere? That's that just somewhere else. I think that was. I remember that name from the episode. I think they bring it up. I think they bring up Omnicron Four as a an example of a society that's destroyed by nuclear war, uh, and that's what Gary Seven is there to prevent. Um, so he uh, he claims to be human. Kirk is very suspicious of him. There's this kind of debate about. You know, oh, should I let him go and do his mission or not? And Gary Seven says, well, if you don't let me go, you're going to be interfering with the timeline. I need to go complete my mission. And, of course, like the first episode we looked at, Spock gives his great counsel to the captain by saying, well, man, that's that's a tough decision. Sucks to be you. If you can't handle it, I'm going to have to trust him. It is difficult to know which is best, Captain. To bring another uh, show into play, it reminds me of that character from Veep. Who was brought in as the assistant for um, the the person who, or for the assistant of uh, Julia Louise Dreyfus, who never says one thing or the other. She just is 
agrees is kind of a, like a yes woman, but it's always like, yeah, I could see one. You could do option A that has some issues. Option B has some issues. But yeah, I, I, this is a really good decision. I'm, I'm glad you're here to make it and doesn't really provide any sort of counsel. I think your comment has many merits, Tim, but I'm not sure if I agree with it. Well, Gabe is sitting here with uh, Spock here, so he's clearly biased. Um, so, yeah, so there's this uh, – the story progresses, and eventually this Gary Seven character escapes, gets down to Earth. We learn that his mission is there's going to be a, a launch of a rocket that has a nuclear warhead on board, and Tim might get into this. Is, is it – is it that the the warhead is supposed to be kind of orbiting Earth, waiting in case nuclear war happens, then they'll launch it, or was it actually going to be that? That's what it sounds like. They said that it wasn't the first one that was launched. That, um, according to Spock, in the 1960s, the world was full, or the sky was full of orbiting H bombs. So it sounds like what they were doing was they were putting a missile platform on a rocket. Although all the stock footage was from the Apollo mission, so it just looked like a regular orbiting rocket that it would go up in the air and it would float around um, Earth in, uh, I guess, a low Earth orbit. And then when it came time to start World War III, then the rocket would fire from there instead of firing from um, from the Earth itself. So we'll get into that a little bit about kind of why you would do something like that. But that that sounds a lot like what it was. But it wasn't. It didn't sound like they were the first ones to do it. But once it was up there and looked like it was about to detonate, that's when the rest of the world freaked out. Yeah, so so the idea is that um, Gary Seven is there to prevent the launch of this rocket, um, to to basically sabotage it. Because if he doesn't, the implication is that this will lead the United the the world down a path that involves um, uh, some kind of world war. So the rest of the episode is kind of a, a madcap chase, almost of. You know, Gary Seven goes to this office in uh, New York. He's uh, he he runs into this secretary um, who uh, Roberta Lincoln, who is kind of an awkward, uh, kind of out there little hippie type person. And they have you know they have some banter and dialogue. And uh, uh, you know he goes to then complete his mission. Kirk and Spock are hot on the trail. They beam down to Earth and they're chasing after him. Um, they come to his office, but Gary Seven escapes. He ends up transporting himself to the McKinley rocket base, which looks a whole lot like Cape Canaveral. I think they use some stock footage um, from the the main NASA launch site in Florida. And he, you know, once again, more kind of funny things that he does. He he has a pen that he uses to hypnotize a security guard with, and he kind of goes into infiltrate. Um, there's a very interesting scene where he climbs out on the gantry right before the rocket's about to launch, and the, the cat, um, the cat, his cat Isis is on the gantry as well. I think the cat was, you know, one of the my favorite characters in the episode because he would talk to the cat. The cat would go meow, and then you'd be like, "Yes, I totally agree." Marxism was never going to be in a working philosophy, or the cat would go meow, and it's like, "Yeah, no, I really want to see that episode of I Love Lucy. It's one of my favorites." It's it, essentially the R two D two of Star Trek. Exactly. So so the madcap chase continues. Kirk and Spock end up going to this McKinley rocket base. They're apprehended by some guards and kind of – it's weird. They're held in custody and as this kind of action unfolds, which is strange, they, they kind of have their hands tied behind their back as the main action of the show continues. Well, Spock wears a fedora so he can hide his ears. Yeah, but an awkward fedora, like something you'd see somebody – you know, like a 70-year-old person in Florida who is on their way to Denny's, you know, wearing. Um, so so – uh, th- 
what ends up happening is the Enterprise is able to beam uh, Gary 7 off of the rocket launch pad right before the rocket launches. Gary 7 can't fully complete his mission. The rocket launches, and this sets off all these kind of alarms. Um, you see Uhura, the communications officer, she's monitoring all these broadcasts. They never name the country. Uh, they say something like opponent country, but it, you the hear major it, powers. I think it, she it, says like, "Oh, everyone's talking about it." Yeah, exactly. And but you hear it in Russian. It, it's all in Russian. The, the idea is, I think, that the Soviet Union is very worried about this launch. And meanwhile, um, Gary Seven uh, ends up getting back to his office. The, this inept kind of sec- secretary, Roberta, uh, accidentally figures out how to uh, thwart the Enterprise and bring him back. And he's trying to. Uh, sabotage the rocket launch from this office where they have the computer. Because mm-hmm. I think the rocket was originally supposed to go up into Earth in orbit, but then once he was only halfway done with his his mission, it changed course, and instead of going up into space and staying there, sounded like they said it was going to essentially act like a regular ballistic missile and travel and land somewhere, they said, like in the middle of the Eurasia. And interestingly, it said, oh, the rocket has armed itself. I didn't know it could do that. And then that's how it was going to blow up. Yeah, so people are pretty worried about United that. States action. I'll say that I'm not 100% sure that another country can just know that a bomb is armed or not armed. I mean, I get the Enterprise can do that because it's got, you know, 23rd, 4th, 5th century uh, worth of uh, technology. But it seems odd that um, that the, the other side, whether it be the Russians or the Chinese, can know that a bomb is armed and is actually coming down to explode as opposed to just simply a malfunction in the rocket itself. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's kind of silly. I mean, honestly, though, the I mean, this part the the plot actually starts to pick up. There's there's about twenty minutes in this episode where they're just kind of, you know, like there's this chase going on and it's just kind of awkward. But here, you know, they come close to resolution. Um, Gary Seven's plan is that he's going to detonate the warhead way above Earth. Uh, I think he has to do it above a hundred miles uh, altitude, um, and thereby preventing you know a, a third world war from breaking out. Um, Kirk and Spock get to his office and are trying to stop him because they still don't really know what he's up to. And there's this kind of long standoff, which for me is almost like a, this like allegory for the cold war, like both Gary seven and Kirk, they all, they both want to stop, you know, they want to promote peace, but Kirk doesn't really know if he can trust him. And, uh, there's this part where basically Spock says he can't, he can't disable it and he has to let Gary seven do it. Captain, I want that warhead detonated too. Unless I do it, at least 100 miles above ground, just barely in time, frighten them out of this arms race. Captain, monitor show all major powers on full missile alert. Retaliatory strike ordered on warhead impact. Spock, I can estimate some of this, Captain, but without more time. Captain, he can only guess. Will you please let me do my job? And... You know, Earth is saved. The, the weapon is detonated, I think, 104 miles above the Earth just in time. Um, then there's this debrief where Gary Seven saying that the the Enterprise, uh, you know, he was able to complete his mission despite the Enterprise interference. Um, you know, we had this discussion during the first part of this episode saying where Spock says, well, we didn't really interfere. We were intended to be part of this event that happened. And Spock says some corny thing to the effect of, well, I think Gary Seven and his secretary, Ms. Lincoln, are going to have plenty more adventures in the future, dot, dot, dot. What happens next week? Will Gary Seven join? 
it was never. I mean, the spinoff never happened. Um, I, I don't really know much more about it. But... but but do Star Trek fans like if you go to a Star Trek convention, uh, do people dress up as um, Gary Seven or Isis the Cat? Is there fan fiction? That's what I want to know. Like fan do, fiction? Yes. No. Do Do Star Trek fans name their cat Isis? Oh God, I hope so. Uh, no, I I think you'd have to be a. Uh, a, a deeply, deeply, deeply devoted fan to to go that far. I mean, you have a black cat. Did you not name it? No, I, I, didn't, I didn't think about that. Um, but um, but yeah, that that's kind of how the episode ends with you know everything kind of back to the way it was. So you know, we'll, I guess we'll talk more about our reactions later. I think the episode has some interesting fodder in terms of it definitely has a 1960s kind of feel. You, it takes place in the timeline. This character, Gary Seven, really seems like a, you know, a product of the times. And you, there's some actually good footage from NASA, even though it doesn't have to do with nuclear launch. You do kind of get the sense of this, uh, of the times, I think. And, you know, that ties into the whole nuclear uh, aspect of this. I mean, yeah. So on that, I think it makes a lot of sense that the idea of nukes in space... Um, was on the mind of the Star Trek writers at the time. The world's attention was turned upward um, into space in the 1950s and the 1960s, not just because of Sputnik or the Apollo missions, but also because space was becoming, sorry, the next frontier um, for military competition between the U.S. and the USSR. Would you say the final frontier? Well, I'm sure we got, we could figure out other frontiers to militarize, but it was certainly the, the next one at that particular time. Um, pairing nuclear weapons with ballistic missiles. Uh, essentially, they travel through space to get to their targets most of the time. meant that these two technologies, nuclear weapons and s- satellites and rockets, become closely interlinked um, in terms of their development, and not only that, but in the minds of the people and the public. So nuclear powers also rely a lot on satellites, among other tools, to detect and track incoming weapons and early warning systems to figure out uh, what's happening, and also to monitor the progress of an adversary's nuclear force or to verify arms control agreements, to look in space to see if they're actually going through and dismantling the things that they say they're going to dismantle. It was in this environment that the Outer Space Treaty entered into force in October 1967, just before this episode coming out in March of 1968. Um, countries that have signed this treaty also known by its very full, long title, which is the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies. Kind of what what a title. That sounds like a job title in the Federation. They could have used an acronym, maybe. Might have been a good uh, good option there. <laughs> well, the uh, arms control community, Joel, is quite known for its love of acronyms. The treaty that is not negotiated, but it's out there, the... Prevention of an arms race in outer space. They call it the Peros Treaty. So I don't know if it's as sexy as what you're looking for, but they do try to make their acronyms. Back to the Outer Space Treaty. Countries that sign this agreement agree not to install or place nuclear weapons or other WMD, weapons of mass destruction, in the Earth's orbit, on the moon, or any other celestial body. Things like asteroids and stuff like that that's floating up there. This also includes not testing nuclear weapons in space, though therefore keeping space and uh, the exploration and exploitation of it peaceful, something that I think would be quite welcomed by the Federation. Um, just a brief aside, I mean, what, what would a nuclear blast in space look like? I mean, let's, you, know, you mentioned the idea of testing a weapon in space. 
Um, you know, we've obviously seen the footage of being tested on the ground um, and kind of what that looks like. You know, this idea that in the episode, a blast goes off uh, about 100, uh, I think you said 104 miles above um, the atmosphere, which is still relatively low, or be, above the ground, which is still relatively low. Um, I mean, is that something catastrophic? Can you test nuclear weapons in space? Is, is there huge radiation effects on the ground? I mean, what what does that look like? So one of the things that I want to talk about is when Gary 7 detonates the atomic bomb at 104 miles up, why wasn't there other things which you would expect? Things like um, EMP effects, electromagnetic pulse. Quick factual question on this. So when I was watching the episode, I didn't think he was talking about detonating like detonating the actual nuclear explosion. I took that to mean that he was detonating the actual missile. So I, like I a self-destruct. I think he detonated the nuclear device. I he think it he went detonated off, a nuclear device. Because that's why he kept talking about it needed to be above 100 miles for it to be a safe distance. Because otherwise you can detonate a missile that's just coming down anywhere and it would explode and break up. So I think, I think it really was an actual nuclear detonation. That doesn't make any sense to me. Well, you see lots of flashing white lights that appear on the, on the sassy computer screen when he does it. I don't really know what that's supposed to be, but I'm fairly certain that he detonated the nuclear bomb, and it wasn't just detonating the missile. But that would have, like, I guess, do they ever reference that elsewhere? It just made more sense to me that they were just destruct, self-destructing the, the system to have a nuclear bomb go off in the air. That would be, like... Well, so... A real-world example of this that kind of Gabe was referring to, um, after we did a, a, a test which was called Starfish Prime, fun little name for that. It was in 1962. This was part of the Operation Fishbowl. The names and code names for this just sound like gibberish when you put them together. But the Starfish Prime test in 1962, uh, we tested a bomb about 250 miles up in space because we did a series of these high altitude nuclear test because we wanted to figure out what it would what it would do. Uh, well, it turns out when that one went up on 250 miles up, many U.S., Russian, and British satellites essentially stopped working. Slowly, they dwindled to the point where they didn't work at all. And what people on the ground noticed was, you know, a vibrant series of colors. You can actually go on YouTube and see some of these tests and kind of what the colors look like. Um, I think you would see... You don't see a mushroom cloud because a mushroom cloud is the, the rising of heat from the ground. So it would look like a big space explosion, kind of not like the Death Star blowing up, but that kind of similar idea. Now, the higher you get up into space, um, it's more likely that there wouldn't be much of an explosion at all, like the effects of a, a nuclear bomb that goes off in space, because a lot of the blast that happens is the pushing of air away. There's no air in that particular effect. It would be more like the radioactivity would fire, fire out pretty far. And that, the radioactivity is what ultimately shut down a lot of satellites combined with some sort of an EMP effect. Um, so that's what we did when we had these series of high-altitude atmospheric tests. So I would be curious why there wasn't any sort of reports of EMP effects or anything like that. But Because one study that I saw said if you had a bomb go off roughly around 100 miles up, there should be an EMP range of about 1,000 miles, which would be uh, 1,000 miles from the center of the detonation. So there should be something. 
um, but there wasn't anything. But I think that that's probably just something that you just had to not talk about in a Star Trek episode. So, so, and just to give some context, because it was tough for me. They're like, oh, a hundred miles, and what is that? You know, we're used to maybe think about feet, like when we're in an airplane. Um, but it, it sounds like the the International Space Station, which is you know currently orbiting the Earth, that's at 250 miles, hmm. and the space shuttle, um, its orbital altitude is anywhere from 190 to 330 miles. So 100 miles would would be relatively low compared to other stuff that we've put in space. You would um, see it. There would be something there. Yeah. Um, but whether or not it's um, far enough away for there not to be, I mean, there would there wouldn't be any fallout. Fallout happens when um, the radioactive materials, uh, the radioactive isotopes coming out from the explosion mix with things like the ground and dirt and debris and buildings. But there'd be something usually attached to air particles. But pretty quickly that becomes dispersed, and there's a lot less of a of an impact. Depends on the prevailing winds and whether or not it was raining at the time, and there was cloud debris and some of that stuff. But you would see something, um, and there would be some kind of an effect, but I guess it's clearly wasn't as big of an impact as it would have been if it landed on the doorstep of someone in Eurasia. Now, and what about the radiation itself from the blast? Because you know, I understand the point about fallout that that that's like dust and, and debris. Mm-hmm. Um, but the radiation, let's say you had a blast in space and you had an astronaut who's just you know maybe I don't know ten miles away floating around. Does that radiation pass through him, or does it kind of? give him a lethal dose? Uh, how would that affect? I think most of the things that I've been reading about um, bombs going off in space would say that the background radiation in space is higher than, um, unless you were very close to where the nuclear bomb was going off and you would happen to get a lot of what's called prompt radiation because when a bomb goes off, right, there's radioactive effects and there's um, blast effects uh, in terms of um, a shockwave and there's also kind of explosion and fire. Well, there's no explosion and fire in space because there's no oxygen to burn. The radioactive prompt radiation would, would definitely be there. And the concussion effects also are quite limited because there's no air being pushed out. So the prompt radiation, which is usually not a worry you have when you have a traditional atomic bomb going off because if you're in a place where that blows up and you're within the range of where prompt radiation happens, you're also in the range of where the blast and the shockwave will most likely kill you first. So those are things that you don't tend to worry about. But in space, I think you'd be more worried about general background radiation coming from the sun. And you know most of that radioactivity is broken up in our atmosphere when it comes down here. So I think a spacesuit of you floating, I assume your, your, your straw man you have here is in a spacesuit at some point. Um, and not just floating around in space. I think there would be tend to be fine. Yeah, no, it, I was I was envisioning a living, breathing astronaut protected from the vacuum. No, I mean it's interesting you say that because I know um, the the Apollo. That was a, I think a big concern for the Apollo astronauts that because they would be exposed for so long outside of the the Van Allen belts. Um, and I think this is something that the the, the uh, conspiracy theorists say is that well, when you're in space, you're mm-hmm. you're exposed to so much radiation. How could they survive that? Man could not have gone to the moon. But um, that's, that's really interesting. That just the background radiation would be more potent than than what would be let off from the blast. Background radiation, unless you have a bomb that is made to issue more radiation than normal, or if there was a lot of fallout and it hits you pretty quickly, radiation is really something that's so far at the bottom in terms of people's fears. Uh, even with things like dirty bombs, which are pretty much just bombs that go off that are conventional explosions that happen to have radioactive elements um, attached to the debris, those are small on the level of concern um, because the human body is, uh, you know, when you fly in an airplane, you're exposed to tremendous amounts of background radiation. You eat a banana, 
you're being exposed to levels of radiation. So radiation itself is, it's, it's like a spectrum. You, there isn't a good level of radiation, a bad level of radiation. There's like averages that you shouldn't reach over the course of your lifetime or over a certain set period of time that, you know, you try to be able to detect. But for, unless you're working on say a nuclear reactor or you're involved in Fukushima cleanup or something where your job, this is something you have to deal with on a, on a large basis. Um, you want to be able to, you can check that and there's ways like they have little detectors that you put a pin on yourself and it will turn a different color. If you've reached a certain level of radiation, you should get out. But people, then you just rotate out and you come back. So I would say that radiation is certainly less of a concern, even if it's in space. But um, the idea of putting weapons in space is something that people debated quite a bit. So the, the Outer Space Treaty existed, but there were quite a number of challenges um, to the effectiveness of that treaty, both by the United States and the um, Soviet Union, things that look like real-world counterparts to the system that Gary Seven tries to destroy. So the first one of these that I want to mention, it's a cool name, the Fractional Orbit Nuclear Bombardment Satellite with the fun but probably offensive and other context acronym FOBS. Uh, this was a Soviet ICBM program started in 1962. A nuclear missile would launch from the Earth, go into a low Earth orbit, hold its pattern, and then once it was ordered to, it would deorbit and then attack a target somewhere on the Earth. So the primary goal of this program would be to avoid the early first-generation U.S. ballistic missile early warning system, which is <laughs> because most likely... Soviet missiles would come from the north, given the ballistic pass that they would take. So all of our early warning systems faced north. The idea behind these FOB systems was you could have it go into orbit, hold, and then once it was ready to launch again, it could attack the United States from the south instead of from the north. So you would essentially catch the United States um, with their pants down, and you would be able to take out a number of U.S. command and control systems, um, the White House. You could take out... The, a lot of the U.S. missile silos, the bomber bases, and you can get them before the United States would even know anything was coming. The first thing that we would know that a missile was incoming would be essentially the radioactivity that was happening once the bombs went off. So were, were these actually launched? Yeah. The, these, would, would, were, these were systems that were, um, were tested and put into place. The Soviet Union claimed that it, they didn't violate the Outer Space Treaty because the Outer Space Treaty only banned the placement of nuclear weapons in orbit. It didn't ban the testing of the system which you would use to put them into orbit. They tested a number of FOBs without putting a live warhead um, on the platform. So a nice little loophole for them. So one of these systems, they had three of them, but one of them, uh, which is usually either referred to as the R-36 O or by the 8K-69. Um, they have different code names in the U.S. and NATO and versus what the Soviets called it. This was actually deployed in 1969 by the Soviet Union. They put them in 18 silos over at their base in uh, Baikonur, Kazakhstan, until 1983 when the FOBs were um, – well, they were prohibited by the SALT II arms control agreement that was signed between the United States and the Soviet Union. And also they went out of style because turns out you can do most of those missions um, better with submarines because they hide and you don't know where they are. But also early warning systems got better. Fun fact, the, uh, the, the Baikonur base – is actually the current home of the Russian spaceport. They call it the, the Baikonur Cosmodome and was featured in an episode of Star Trek Next Generation where it launched a, uh, a, the USS uh, 
Tsolkovich? What is it called? You remember? Tsolkovsky. Tsolkovsky. Okay. So they launched it from there. So it's certainly something that um, is in real life, but also found its way into Star Trek another way, too. Yeah. Konstantin uh, Tsolkovsky, he was like an early space theory guy from Russia. So, yeah, no, I, I'd, I'd love to go visit uh, Baikonur at some point to go check some of that stuff out. It wasn't just the Soviets that, that challenged the Outer Space Treaty. We also did it, too, on our end. The Project Excalibur. It was a space-based X-ray laser, which would be powered by a nuclear device that could theoretically destroy incoming nuclear-armed missiles when they were still flying into space. This was developed as part of the uh, President Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, or SDI, which was started in 1983. Um, The Reagan White House claimed that this didn't violate the Outer Space Treaty because it technically wasn't a nuclear weapon. It was just a nuclear device, but... A lot of people disputed whether or not this was actually the case. It ultimately was abandoned in 1992 because, you know, one, the end of the Cold War, but also our shift to more theater missile defenses and land-based uh, missile defense systems. And the fact also, they never were able to figure out the technology. It was pretty hard to do. When a crisis would happen, what they would do is, okay, well, if war is about to start, for who cares about a treaty? They would launch these things, what they called pop-up basing. A missile would hold somewhere in, say, Alaska or somewhere else, and it would be launched up on the warning of a first strike from the Soviet Union. The goal would be then to hit the missile before they could release decoys and other uh, countermeasures. So this would be – it would stay on the ground until it was a crisis and then get launched up into space and then – Fire their lasers um, that way. So this was, and this was part of the Star Wars program. The Star Wars program. That maybe they should have called it the Star Trek program since it was uh, brought up in this episode way before uh, Star Wars even came out. Uh, it could have been, although um, Star Trek was canceled so quickly, maybe they didn't think Star Wars was coming about and was pretty popular. Yeah. So maybe they wanted to jump on that. So, so here's a question: Is there anything in space right now? Any nuclear aside from maybe? A small nuclear reactor that's powering satellite or something like that. But any have any weapons, um, nuclear weapons, made it into space that I should be worried about flying over my uh, my apartment building? Well, I don't have the clearance to talk about that or even to know about it. But no, there there isn't. Um, even even in terms of nuclear power uh, for for satellites and those kind of things. Now, solar panels—that's what they got. Joel and I had this ongoing conversation about space-based solar power and whether or not it's better to put solar panels on on satellites and beam that stuff down to the earth or to put them on the ground, which is stuff that he works on. So, Well, we are talking about science fiction, so that would be uh, an appropriate topic. That's a burn. That hurts. Yeah. In 1981, um, the Defense Department completed a survey comparing 30 different basing modes for our ICBMs, basically where to store them, how to deliver nuclear weapons in the best way that keeps them safe from being hit first by another country, be able to do a range of missions, and also not to break the bank while doing so, make them cost-effective. In addition to more conventional approaches, um, such as underground missile silos, relying more on submarines, putting these things on, say, the ocean floor or attached to a boat, there were also space-based ideas. And I'll link to this um, survey in our show notes. But there's a section on orbital-based ICBMs. Essentially, it describes it as a new booster for the Minuteman silo missiles. And on the warning of an incoming attack, the missiles would be launched into orbit and await further orders. A lot like the Soviet FOB system. Um, Command and control could then decide whether or not to send the missiles later on or abort their mission. And the missiles would then splash down in the ocean and then they'd be be recovered. But 
the document brainstormed some pros and cons for this idea. Pro, they said low cost. I'm not sure how they got to that calculation, but they said it would be low cost, probably lower than um, maintaining large missile silos elsewhere. But the con list is a little bit longer. Uh, They said it would be vulnerable to attack in orbit. It requires early warning. It is uh, actually hurts accuracy in terms of hard targets that you need to be able to hit. And a false alarm, essentially, like you think an incoming missile is happening, but it's not actually there. It means the loss of capability because you have to launch up your missiles and then recover them when they splash down. And one more issue they say here is that it would violate the Outer Space Treaty. So just throw that in there really quickly at the bottom there. No, I mean, it's interesting to hear about, you know, kind of the deliberation decision to get this stuff in there. And obviously, even though we didn't end up going with it, I mean, if you go back to this episode, this episode seems to assume that if uh, any type of space-based nuclear weapons platform was launched by presumably the Soviet Union and the United States, that would somehow destabilize and lead to a nuclear catastrophe. And I was wondering, Tim, like putting on your nuclear like policy hat and it know, never it never comes off. <laughs> what like what do you think about that? I mean, do you think that um, you know if let's say let's say the pros were to outweigh the cons and we had this stuff in space, would that drastically change the kind of dynamics of the the Cold War as it related to nuclear power? And I guess more generally, I mean, my thought was it's interesting that in the plot, the guy is sent back to disrupt that part of Earth's history as opposed to trying to disrupt like the development of a nuclear weapon generally because obviously we were able to come into harm's way with the potential for nuclear disaster without space entering the equation. And and I think unrelated to that too is I mean he ultimately caused the crisis that may have – Started World War Three. Who knows what would have happened if we would have launched up this orbiting platform and then nothing. If they would have just continued to float up there, ultimately would we have figured ourselves out? Because I would say that the existence of the Soviet system, the FOB system that they had in place, as well as developments that we worked on this stuff in terms of the U.S. and the Russians throughout the Cold War and lots of other de- delivery platforms and submarines was essentially served a similar purpose. The idea – behind, and I'll get to this in a second, like why you would want to have orbiting platforms is they're hard to hit. Um, if you say say you have an orbiting platform and you're the United States and the Soviet Union wants to first strike, first they have to hit those things up there. And then once we know that there's missiles coming up, then you go, okay, well now it's time to launch. And you have that time, you keep your weapon away from the other side. So I would say that the scenario that's in the episode is probably fairly unlikely. Uh, even it wouldn't necessarily at least cause an immediate crisis. It sounds like if this goes up, something bad is going to happen, that the Earth is going to turn into another Omnicron 4. My guess is unless there was some sort of significant mass damage caused by the nuclear explosion that Gary 7 either caused or prevented, the U.S. would have probably just thought um, it was a malfunction in the system. Um, It depends as to Joel's question about whether or not it was a bomb going off or just a missile exploding. It seems like the U.S. would have just said, Oh, our weapon malfunctioned because we these things happen when we were doing these high atmospheric nuclear tests. A lot of the missiles malfunctioned, or the bomb didn't go off, or something happened, and we just said, "Oh shoot! Well, let's fix this the next time." So I think um, the idea that because this malfunctioned, and a, and even if a nuclear detonation went off, would we have thought, "Oh my gosh, guys, look at what we've done." Or we're now scared from ever engaging in the Cold War again. 
I would say that the the pressures that are involved in the, why we went to the Cold War and those ideological conflicts and the security bureaucracies and apparatuses that were created in the U.S. and the Soviet Union that served to continue the Cold War, those things would have continued and probably ignored this um, missile launch and missile malfunction. It would have treated it as an accident. I wouldn't necessarily say that the scenario that played out in this episode would be true. Yeah, it sounds like this is just another launch kind of platform and uh, just one that was never found to be effective for whatever reason or for the reasons sure. you discussed. Well, I would say um, there's a, there was a study that the RAND Corporation put out, and this is a, a semi-private think tank that puts together a lot of what we understand about nuclear deterrence and studies um, weapon systems. And they studied um, space-based systems, and they t- basically concluded that for a lot of the what's called deorbiting time, so once they're ready to launch and then when it actually lands onto Earth, if this is an orbiting system, um, are similar or maybe even longer than ballistic missile flight times. Where is the satellite at any given time when it's orbiting Earth? If they say, okay, it's time to launch, they're going to have to say, all right, well, let's wait till the satellite reaches a certain window to be able to hit the target that it wants. It just can't launch because it has to reach a certain trajectory. And that trajectory is based on a window. It's why you have launch times and launch windows when you fire um, things out of uh, you know, Cape Canaveral. When you calculate those things into effect and you also add things like better early warning systems and submarines that serve similar missions, it probably wouldn't be an immediate cause for concern because we also have lots of other things like our hardened silos or the Russians had mobile ICBM forces. They would think that uh, something that would survive a first strike and they'd be available um, to retaliate. So I would say that Probably at least the scenario that was played out in this episode wouldn't likely happen. So just for fun, some of the other ideas that this document survey um, suggested for our basing modes uh, suggested putting missiles on dirigibles, uh, on, on, on blimps. The pros for that... Wait, is that like a Hindenburg type like thing? Like a Hindenburg, putting a nuclear bomb on a Hindenburg. Um, some of the pros for that was minimal environmental impact because, you know, they're floating around up, up there. But a con... Pretty easy to track and destroy, and prone to weather issues. So maybe not a great plan. Uh, another idea was putting the missiles inside giant pools of opaquely dyed water scattered across the country. Pro, long endurance and survivability. Con, requires lots and lots of water. Usually out in the desert, so I don't know where you're going to get that. Uh, or finally, I think this might be some interest to you, Gabe, putting nuclear weapons on wide-body jets like 747s. The pros... They didn't have any, but the cons, endurance limited to hours because, you know, it's an airplane. Yeah, I don't know how I, even less than the idea of satellite or something in space, I don't know if they, I, I like the idea of an airplane flying over my head uh, just carrying these, like, nuclear devices on. But we tested these things. We tested uh, 747s um, carrying uh, <laughs> nuclear weapons. I'll link to the, an, our YouTube video of a real-life test. That we did with this. Um, the U.S. and the U.K. actually worked pretty close with this uh, in a codename system called Skybolt. That sounds like a superhero's name. Um, before it was canceled in 1962 in favor of submarines. Now, this really upset the British because they planned to put all of their ICBMs on airplanes. Once Skybolt was abandoned, it caused a huge feud between the U.S. and the uh, British in terms of how they would figure out what to do next. Eventually, we gave them uh, missile and submarine technology. Conceivably, the military brass and political leadership in charge during the Star Trek episode must have had a good reason why it thought, you know, made strategic sense to put these weapons in space. Otherwise, they wouldn't have risked it, right? 
According to a report by the RAND Corporation, they looked at space-based weapon systems and cited a number of reasons advocates give for doing this. Uh, one, they argue that it makes them less vulnerable to attack from ground-based weapon systems, mostly because they're further away and would require rocket technology to reach them. Second, once the weapons were launched towards the Earth, they would have a shorter time of being visible to the enemy's radar and defense systems because the orbital position of its trajectory, which they say about 160 kilometers, essentially where it needs to be launched from, um, is way lower than a ballistic missile's trajectory path, which is normally peaks around uh, 1,300 kilometers. It goes further out into space and less time for it to be able to be tracked. And finally, they say in the report that the warheads could reach their intended target from any direction, which we kind of mentioned before, um, when most of these early warning systems faced the opposite way. In addition to that, people say that it makes sense because it adds another leg to a, what we have as our nuclear triad, which is missiles, submarines, and bombers. So instead of a triad, you would have like a quad rad or something, another leg for the enemy to have to destroy or another leg for us to have in case something else fails. All of a sudden, if it finds out that our missile technology isn't working or if the other side finds a way to discover where our submarines are at, you have another leg to stand on. And there's also an interesting morality argument that says putting nuclear weapons in space instead of near cities means that if you have a counterforce weapon strategy, which is one that aims to destroy a military's target instead of cities or industry, it would mean that that strategy would result in few to zero civilian casualties if a fighting war breaks out, especially if both sides of the conflict put their stuff up into space. Another side point that people make is this debate about nuclear weapons in space or any sort of weapons in space is probably moot because it's going to happen inevitably. The argument says air, land, and sea, all of these avenues have eventually have seen conflict placed in them. So space is very important. It's a center of gravity, and we're going to need to move first. But what about the other side to this debate? Beyond violating existing treaties, does it make sense? One, it turns out that hitting a target on Earth from space is actually quite difficult. You need to probably wait until the delivery platform enters a very narrow window that's only available maybe during certain hours or days, depending on the weather and, and the way the Earth is orbiting. So you have to wait for a certain period of time. And second, if the delivery system malfunctions or explodes, you have a lot of uh, collateral damage to other space platforms and you know radioactive debris coming down on Earth. Not necessarily a, a nice thing. Three, if something breaks in the orbiting platform, you have to send up astronauts to repair it. Uh, a lot harder to do when you have your missile silos out in Kansas or Montana or somewhere where you can reach it. Um, if communication systems are broken up, uh, which can happen because of solar flares or any other sort of incident, you're really left screwed when it comes to that. It's also pretty hard to harden the platform against attack, whether it be an anti-satellite weapon or something as simple as just a, a, a kinetic weapon that releases sand, which they said in a, a Naval War College review um, reported about a direct ascent anti-satellite weapon that would just basically release sand in orbit and it would destroy most of these various platforms. So if you want to be able to make these systems maneuverable or put armor on them, all of those things make it heavier and are a lot more expensive to be able to launch. You know, of course, unless you have Mr. Zulu that can raise the shields. Does Mr. Zulu raise the shields? I forget. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's a helmet, so they'll yeah they'll often tell him to raise shields. And also, the final argument against all of this is it costs a lot of money. Um, submarines ended up basically serving the role 
of orbiting platforms, so they fail out of favor. And beyond that, some people also argue, as Gary Seven said, that these things could disrupt um, nuclear deterrence. Basically, they're perceived to be vulnerable to attack if it's actually that easy to destroy them. And also, they're seen to be missiles that can fire fairly quickly and reach their targets. So if you're the possessor of these weapons and you think that they're vulnerable, you're more likely to use them in case of a crisis. Or if you're the other side, you know, looking up and seeing these weapons, which can quickly come down to get you, you fire quickly in the, in the event of a crisis. There isn't that time to mediate a dispute. You have to basically use them or lose them. So those kind of things are people perceive as being quite disruptive. And add in the fact that natural phenomena such as space debris or solar flares could account for why a orbiting platform wasn't working. You have to then figure out, is this a real attack? Um, if your something stops working, you think maybe we're being attacked, so therefore we'll use the rest of them. Or if there is a real attack, you might think, oh, that's just another solar flare screwing with our system. Let's hold off, which causes a delay and basically ends up you getting screwed uh, one way or the other. So these are why we don't put these things up there. But apparently someone in this Star Trek world in the 1960s thought it was a smart idea to put up hundreds of these orbiting H-bombs. So that's all the stuff that this covers um, in terms of the episode's nuclear topics. But is this, Gabe, uh, where does this fit in terms of the like the Star Trek catalog? Is this something that people are pretty excited about, well, Star Trek fan-wise? Yeah, like I said, I mean, I, I don't think this is uh, considered one of the most cherished episodes. And I know, I mean, personally, I, I didn't enjoy this one very much. Um, just kind of from a, a TV standpoint, it, it was trying to do... You know, trying to be a couple of things, trying to be a Star Trek episode, trying to be a pilot for the show. And I'm not a big fan of pilots generally because, you know, you're trying to figure out what the characters are and, and they, they haven't really hit their stride. So this, this Gary Seven guy, he was a little bit weird. There's just 20 to 30 minutes of the episode where they're just kind of running around chasing each other. Yeah, and, and the middle was really boring. Yeah, I, I, th- I think it just kind of lost steam. Uh, th- you know, there's some merits. I thought the end was pretty good. Um, you know, the standoff between Kirk and Gary Seven, where, like I said, this allegory for the Cold War, we both kind of want the same thing, but can we really trust each other? And, you know, I thought there's some interesting stuff about them visiting Earth and, you know, some good humor moments like in the last episode we did where people being surprised by somebody transporting or seeing Spock's ears and, you know, having a reaction to that. So there's some of that. But I think overall, uh, you know, definitely not one of the better episodes, but I mean, certainly a good thought provoking one to, to talk about this stuff. I, I would echo all of that. I, I thought especially the middle was pretty weak, again, from the moving from point A to point B, uh, et cetera. I, we've talked in previous podcasts. I'm not a fan of really weak depictions of how like a governmental authority would respond in these types of situations. I thought the fact that it was just like the 65-year-old security guy who's just like, stand in that corner over there until I come back here and give you a stern talking to. Like, that was the extent of the government response when you have nuclear weapons close by about to be sent into space. I will say, story aside, just focusing more on the elements and, like, the the themes to talk about, I thought they actually also missed an opportunity. You know, we talked we've talked previously about the Prime Directive and, you know, not messing with a planet's development and stuff like that. But we've always thought of that as us not interfering with, you know, another planet. But I thought it was interesting here where you had a very specific case of another planet interfering with us so that we didn't kill ourselves. 
And I thought, you know, you could easily have set up a really interesting conversation about, you know, the prime directive or the just generally the idea of, well, maybe we were meant to destroy ourselves and, and the whole idea of, you know, why do they see it fit to actually stop other civilizations from killing themselves or going down a, a dark path as opposed to one that, that leads to the Gene Roddenberry oasis of, you know, innovation and, and selflessness that, that we always think about with Star Trek. Well, that was one of the things that I looked at when I was first starting to research for this pair of episodes was it sounded like the war, there was some sort of, you know, whether it be, I think it's called like the eugenics wars or whether or not nuclear weapons were involved in that or if it was just conflict elsewhere. But it took large wars to make civilization basically collapse. It was this, there's something called like the, uh, oh, what is it? Like the, the post-atomic horror. So after there was a third world war in the Star Trek universe, I, I think the timeline changes about when that happened and how many people died, that that took humanity in the world forward and out of the ashes of a, of a world war that involved nuclear weapons, the Federation came out of it, or at least the the Earth-based equivalent. I think it was like a one-world government maybe set up. Now, I'm out of my, my, my realm well, here, but does that sound like what, what yeah, ended up happening? So, so, you know, obviously Star Trek is like any kind of body of stories. It's a living body. So there's a lot that came after the original series about this, and I, I hope we'll – You'll be able to go do uh, do one on um, Star Trek First Contact, which talks a lot about this. But in the storyline of Star Trek, yes, there's a series of uh, nuclear wars that happen in the in the uh, 21st century. And afterwards, there is this world government that comes together. And it's really during this time that um, uh, humans uh, develop the ability to travel into deep space this attracts the attention of this other species, the Vulcans, which, you know, Mr. Spock is half Vulcan, and that precipitates the um, development of this kind of utopia. So, yeah, it is interesting that, you know, they're trying to prevent nuclear war here, but then later on it's used as a catalyst for progress. According to the book Star Trek and History, which was uh, edited by this woman named Nancy R. Reagan, uh, spelled differently than uh, Nancy Reagan that recently passed away. It says it was uh, 2053 in the Star Trek universe uh, timeline, which was the end of World War III, where the remaining Earth governments met in San Francisco in order to cease fire. Many of the Earth's major cities were in ruins, and over 600 million people were dead in what was called the post-atomic horror. As pockets of humanity struggled to survive the dangers of limited resources, ravaged lands, and radioactive contamination, out of the out of the ashes of Mad Max Fury Road comes the the Federation. It is interesting that no one tried to prevent that in the Star Trek universe canon, but we started to prevent, you know, Gary Seven's mission of maybe causing an accident uh, with these orbiting platforms. Dig that into your morality questions about whether or not these things are good things or not. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that's all right. And also, you know, like Joel brought up, this question of that there's this species out there that's kind of guiding Earth history. That's like not talked about at all. But that would be a very interesting thought is, you know, are we are we kind of in charge of our own fate or not? But uh, I guess that's what the spinoff show is supposed to be about, and that never happens, so we'll, we'll never know. It sounds like this episode probably uh, isn't – considered to be quite popular or it not held uh, close to the heart. I think I was bored by most of this. Um, and in terms of the nuclear most offensive moments for me, mostly just had to do with the idea that 
what this what was this orbiting platform? Why did it happen? Um, why did a missile come from which was supposed to orbit the Earth all of a sudden then just basically became a, like a ballistic missile? And like that whole nuclear side of it got very muddled to me. And it started out being quite interesting, but then I started to think about what type of rules, time travel-wise, this follows, uh, whether it's the the Terminator rules where everything happens and you can't do, change it, which seems to be like what this episode says. The, the Enterprise was always involved in this particular crisis, and it didn't try to change anything, although the new Star Trek reboots talk about an alternate timeline and then you have the episode that we watched earlier, City on the Edge of Forever, seemed to indicate that there was something that could happen in the past that could change the future. So all that got together and it muddled it for me and, and allowed my uh, nuclear nonsense to be much more uh, Im- impactful for me in terms of annoyance. So, But Joel, would you consider this to be something that you would recommend to people? This episode, no. Uh, I would probably actually recommend people avoid it entirely. Uh Unless they are watching each episode just to kind of see the overall uh, kind of history of the show. If anything, I think the whole backstory, Gabe, that you talked about, about the the show being potentially canceled and they were trying to think about, well, how do we salvage some of this show for, you know, the next iteration of television entertainment was – it's an interesting more footnote than I think, uh, you know, kind of key to the catalog. So you recommend people avoid this, but if we had to recommend something to people, I'd recommend that you look at a couple different books um, that are about space-based nuclear weapons. One, a book called Outer Space in World Politics. Um, it's an edited volume organized by Joseph Golson, and in, this came out in 1963. So it's pretty old, but it's a pretty good look at what people were thinking about in terms of orbiting nuclear platforms during the 60s when this episode was written. And it's also a really cool chapter um, by renowned nuclear deterrence scholar Thomas Schelling on it. It's on the military use of bombardment satellite. Something to check out. You can get it on Amazon. Two, Space Weapons Earth Wars. Pretty cool title. This is the RAND study that I mentioned. It was prepared for the U.S. Air Force in 2002, um, and it basically looks at different orbiting platforms and other space weapons, whether it be nuclear or conventional, and what are the pros and cons in these and what we should do in terms of the next steps moving forward on this. So you take those two things, you watch this episode of Star Trek, and you're in pretty good shape um, for debating with your friends about space-based nuclear weapons. Okay, great. Well, thanks again, Gabe, for coming along. Uh, we really relied on you quite a bit to get us to make sense of this very confusing timeline because all, all I pretty much know are the movies. So I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. So we'll have you on because I know that there's more episodes of Star Trek that deal with nuclear weapons, but we'll probably go back to doing movies. Thanks for listening to another episode of Supercritical. We enjoyed it, and we hope you did too. Uh, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of, or guests to come on or you know, basically just want to tell us what we got wrong, there are a couple ways you can contact the show. Contact us on Facebook at facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. You know, we're also on Twitter, so drop us a line at Nuclear Podcast, and also email supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, uh, we'd appreciate it if you would consider subscribing on iTunes. Leaving us review iTunes, their algorithm for how to rank shows really depends on uh, people subscribing and reviewing, so it helps us find new listeners and grow the show. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Joel. And Gabe. 
And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Thank you, Joel.